1: on the new books network I'm one of your hosts Dr. Random Elcher and I'm very pleased to have with me today Dr. Saskia Kunin Snyder to tell us all about her fascinating new book that's just come out from Oxford University Press titled A Brilliant Commodity Diamonds and Jews in a Modern Setting which explores how tens of thousands of people were involved in shipping millions of parts of diamonds from South Africa to London and the journey of the diamonds then went on to further Travels in the Netherlands and America, and understanding the role of Jewish populations in this trade from being peripheral to quite central, um, to this global exchange of diamonds, connected all sorts of places and people together. the book very much takes us on the journey of the diamond. And Saskia, I'm so pleased that you've joined us on the podcast today. Help me take us through a bit of that journey in this interview. Thank you for coming.
2: Thank you, Miranda, for having me. It's a pleasure. Before we start that journey though,
1: could you maybe introduce yourself a bit and explain why you decided to write this book?
2: Uh, Sure. Um, I am a professor of modern Jewish history at uh, the University of South Carolina in the United States, um, where I'm also the director of the Jewish Studies program. And um, this is my second book uh, on the diamond industry in the 19th century. And um, I'm originally from the Netherlands, Um, born and raised and came to the United States when I uh, was 24 and have been here ever since. But um, because I researched uh, Jewish history and particularly early on in the Netherlands, um, the interest in diamonds was almost uh, a given because we cannot think about Dutch Jewish history without thinking about the diamond because it's such a central part of their history for centuries, really. And so um, I discovered that there wasn't um, a whole lot written about the international diamond trade, aside from um, picture books and um, kind of coffee table books. But uh, And their national histories about the diamond uh, trade and diamond industry within national borders, so within Holland or in Antwerp. Um, But very rarely do we find work that explain the commodity chain, particularly the way it was created in the 19th century, and so um, I, I became interested and in, in found out that there is a, a a rich history, almost overwhelming in its material um, to explain not only how the commodity chain in the 19th century um, between Europe. Uh, Africa and the United States is formed, but, um, but also about the role that Jews play in that story. And so it, it, uh, it was almost a, a story that was waiting to be told, and I thought uh, I could try to tell it. Um,
1: that actually chimes a lot with um, my initial thoughts when I saw the book of, oh, I've always wondered about this. So I think that makes a lot of sense to kind of draw it together. I'm glad we now do have a book that explains how all these things went together. Um, And I'd love to kind of move chronologically through space and time as you do in the book, which means, of course, we need to start before the diamond boom, uh, before diamonds become the big shiny mines, mainly in South Africa why and how were Jews involved in
2: the diamond industry even before it was such a big deal? I mean, it's um, of course, diamonds are part of the global scene before the 19th century. And you're right, Jews are engaged in that um, international trading of stones uh, before that. And particularly in areas that had nothing to do with South Africa at all. And so um, diamonds before the 19th century came predominantly from India and from Brazil and um, Sephardic Jews and Jews of Spanish and Portuguese background were engaged in international um, and uh, trans hemispheric trade uh, in all kinds of different Um, objects or uh, produce and spices for instance and so we see the trading of diamonds coming from India and Brazil already before the 19th century but they're much um, kind of smaller in in volume and number um, because what we find in South Africa uh, stuns everyone and so what we see is that Jews being um, central, I wouldn't say central agents but predominant in the uh, international um, uh, in international trade before, in the 16th, 17th, and 18th centuries, um, we see that there is already a infrastructure in that regard, um, well before they find uh, the diamond mines in South Africa. And so there's a history there of Jews being engaged in commerce, in, uh, in trading, and creating networks and creating family connections uh, in different parts of the world that helped them once they do find diamond mines in africa and that that really revolutionizes the entire diamond industry in ways that they had never seen so take us then to those
1: diamond fields in south africa um, with jewish a lot of jewish families having existing networks and experience in this how were they involved in this initial boom
2: yeah and so it is really a remarkable story that when Africa was never part of it wasn't part of anybody's radar of in the gem industry at all. And so, but Jews are present there already um because they're merchants. And because South Africa is part of the British Empire, we see that there are um that there are people of all kinds of backgrounds and um, religious persuasions and. An ethnic backgrounds present in South Africa, um, but they're dealing in different things. But they find in 1866, um, a, the son of a Boer farmer finds uh, what he describes as a pebble, shiny pebble, on a clip, they say in South African, um, on his dad's farm. And um, they know it's not, that it's not a, uh, they know it's something different than what they've seen before. And they take it to a local Country store. Um, this is an old town, a very small settlement, uh, about seven hundred and fifty miles north of Cape Town. And so they take it to the country store um, to have it kind of appraised and evaluated to see if, if they know what that is. And that country store is owned by two Jewish men, um, the Mosetel you know, brothers, and they have connections to family members and um, on the coast. And so they take this to the coast and then it finds its way all the way to London. And they discover that it's actually a very large diamond and it really unsettles everything because Africa is not associated with diamonds. And so they think it's a non anomaly and, and something that was, um, almost like a freak accident really. Um, but they b- begin to find more and more of these stones. And so ultimately this initiates. Um, what comes to be known as a diamond fever in the diamond fields. All of a sudden, Africa turns out to be um, a uh, a a minefield, right? A, a kind of a diamond field full of um, of these amazing gems, and it really starts a diamond fever that draws people in from all parts of of. Africa, but also, um, from Europe and from the United States and from other parts in the world. And so we see then, um, similar as to like the gold fever in, in California and other places that we see that South Africa becomes, uh, kind of a magnet and Jews are part of that. And, but they're already there dealing in goods that, um, uh, that people needed in kind of colonial enterprise and settlement um, before they even found diamonds. And so the country store, Mosenthal families and the Lilienfeld families on the coast, they have import and export uh, businesses already um, on the ground and they deal in grapes and they deal in hides and, and they import goods from Europe that they then distribute to, um, uh, to people in the area. And so diamonds then become kind of folded into um, an inventory that's already circulating and um, they begin to trade in in, in diamonds. And the, so Jews are part of a larger scene of um, colonial enterprise, of colonial expansion, and then um, uh, already having those kind of imperial channels in place that really um, Um, begins the story of the engagement of Jews in the diamond industry, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, no, it does. And I think I want to kind of poke at this a bit more because, of course, if we think of a gold rush, right, California perhaps being the most famous, and this idea of people coming from all over the empire all over the world to the diamond boom, the mental image, and I believe this is actually in a lot of ways quite true, you know, the people turning up are often people who don't have necessarily a lot of other options, right? They're hoping that this will kind of make it big for them. You know, San Francisco famously had like, you know, entirely men during the gold rush. It wasn't exactly a stable settlement. And Hopetown, as you've explained to us, um, 750 people. I mean, that's not a lot. There's not a lot of infrastructure there. Um, and South Africa was not on the map as a place that had diamonds. So although now we know that South Africa has loads of diamonds, At the time, I I can see how it would have been kind of a risky investment for stable companies to, you know, it's one thing for if you've got no other option, sure, have a go. But I can see why companies would be like, "Eh, let's see if this is real before we get too involved. But you've just told us about some Jewish companies that are very willing to get involved and take advantage of this, um, more perhaps than some others were. Why do you think that kind of they were willing to take a chance on this um, when, you know, they didn't have hindsight, they didn't know that that was necessarily going to pay off.
2: Absolutely. We, and we have to put ourselves in the time, right? If we were talking about the 1860s, 1870s, this is not yet a time of fast communication, of, um, of having uh, access to, uh, to information. Um, so they rely on networks of trust. Uh, networks of uh, of family and kinship, and and you're absolutely right. Is that South Africa doesn't exactly? I mean, it's seen at the time as quote unquote the dark continent. right? they don't? in this in the deep interior of mm-hmm. um, of South Africa, that um, there is no real. The people don't know much about it, and there is no real there there. Uh, no infrastructure, no electricity, no uh, railway lines, and so to invest um, in in something that might be true, right? That they have, uh, that there is a diamond um, industry to be built up um, was enormously risky. And uh, for, especially for uh, for European companies or banking firms or investment firms say, yeah, sure, here's my, here's my money, go invest it in a place where we don't know much about and there is enormous risk was not something that people were, uh, would readily do. And so this is, um, and we also have to think about that the area of Hopetown, you know, initially people, this is a place, we call it the city of, of canvas. This is a place where people pitch their tents, they bring buckets and ox carts, and there is no there's no currency, there's no money circulation there. There's no easy access to all the things you need on a daily basis to make a living and to survive. And so they really are in um, beginning from scratch in debt. So we see early settlements then turning into um, kind of small towns and small towns then become larger towns that draws more and more people into it. And so hopetown and what ultimately becomes places like Kimberley, um kimberly is a it literally built on top of a diamond mine um that that takes time and what we see is that the jews are engaged there in not necessarily in um the in digging for diamonds with their axes and with their buckets but they are mostly engaged in providing those goods to those pioneers to begin with. And so they are the ones who who provide the buckets and to provide the axes and food and milk and um, explosives and everything that you need to get gems out of the ground and to dig deep for that. Um, but we also see over time is that the the deeper they dig and the more equipment they need, the more expensive that is, right? And so, we see that initially your point about it draws people who are looking for, um, uh, to make it, right? And that, that is oftentimes people who start out with nothing. The more and more resources you need to dig deeper and deeper requires investments. It requires money. And so where we see, what we see then is that those kinds of pioneers are beginning to draw on the resources at their disposal. And Jews had those resources. They had uncles and nephews and family members and connections to companies on the coast, to banking families back in Europe. And so they begin to draw on those systems of trust and of networking um, that those companies or those investment banks or those family members are more willing to invest money into an enterprise that could be very profitable, that's promising, but they trust the people who are in South Africa doing it. And so in that sense, um, Jewish pioneers had an edge. They had an edge because they could tap into those resources and those networks that um, non-Jewish banks or non-Jewish investment companies were a little bit more reluctant about this. And their focus tended to be elsewhere uh, and not in the interior of Africa. And so what we see then is that very small numbers of Jews in South Africa move from, uh, the frontier and from the margins, um, over the next 10, 15, 20 years, They move into the center of the diamond industry, uh, with the resources and the connections that they have, they begin to, to buy up and consolidate, uh, what initially were very small plots of, of diamond Um, uh, mining, uh, uh, diamond mining, what would you call it? They're not companies quite yet, but they're collectives. Yeah, that's probably a better word for it. Um, And so they begin to make a a name for themselves and consolidate some of those initial small uh, initiatives and then um, uh, begin to expand their presence on the diamond fields and into international commerce. And so in that sense, they Mm -hmm. They had um a little bit of an advantage over over others. And so that's when we begin to see a, a larger presence um of uh, of Jews in the industry
1: mm. so obviously, there are some pretty significant advantages to already having connections, already having lines of communication. But if we do put ourselves in their shoes for a moment, um, Put ourselves really in our shoes and think about well what would it be like to like work with your uncles or your nephews or rely on the trust of a cousin you know just because people are family doesn't inherently mean that we always get along um and that doesn't you know that can that's not always an advantage i guess and so i was wondering if you could kind of talk a little bit about this you know there's obviously structural advantages but I imagine there were also some challenges and some liabilities with
2: relying on this Jewish network. Oh, yes. Yeah. Being Jewish did not always mean that uh, you were successful or that, that by definition, it meant that you were going to succeed in this business. And family, as you pointed out, can be an asset. It can also be a great liability. And so we see great successes. We also see uh, misfortune and failures along the way. Um, and so it didn't, being Jewish didn't guarantee success at all. And so we have stories of of Barney Barnato, who we can talk about later, who became um, uh, known as the Diamond King, an Anglo-Jewish uh, self-made man who becomes uh, very, very successful, had a nephew who tarnished his reputation and who even loads of trouble, um, and they had to go to court because he was involved in illegal diamond dealing and he jeopardized the entire enterprise. And so, absolutely, dealing with your family can be wonderful, but it can also create huge headaches. Um, and we saw this in the case with uh, with the Pardato family who couldn't wait to send their nephew, the troublesome nephew, back to London, who had to assume a false name after he got home and to make sure that uh, he could uh, kind of work under um, still continue to work in the diamond business but uh, his his reputation had been uh, had been ruined and so uh, you're absolutely right and if there's an additional point I'd like to make with this is that um, and I hope the book explains that is that Jews were were um, important in the diamond business and in diamond trading but it doesn't mean that that entire business, Contained or was exclusively Jewish, right? We also have many non-Jews who became successful in the business, and um, and so we see a predominance in um, in diamond um, international companies, particularly when we're talking about consolidation of companies. And Jews are very present in, particularly in places like Amsterdam and New York City, um, but that doesn't mean that the the business group consisted entirely of Jews. Thank you for
1: um, kind of going a bit into that. I think it's an interesting sort of tension in a way to be aware of, of the benefits and the potential problems. Um, And I want to continue the journey of the diamond, right? So it's now diamonds have been found in the fields in South Africa. We have this idea of a boom of an industry that then gets more capital investment, consolidates the kind of production in the field, consolidates the companies back in London where the diamonds are mainly sent. Um, But the diamonds don't stop in London. The raw diamonds at least don't just stay there. Um, They end up in the Netherlands. Before we get into kind of some of the stuff around workers and what they're um, up to in terms of their lives, um, can you give us maybe a sentence or two kind of why they end up in the Netherlands and what happens
2: to the diamond there? Mm -hmm. So I want to take one step back, Miranda, because Mm -hmm. it is I do want to underlying how quite amazing it is for the 1870s and eighties and nineties to get diamonds from the interior of South Africa, even to London, right? They, they travel mostly in mail bags, um, in they stuff, these stones in mail bags, and then put them on an ox cart and then, um, uh, send them by horse and cart to Cape town, where they're then again, in mail bags, just send across the Atlantic ocean to London. And so if you think about the trajectory that in and of itself is really quite amazing, but you're right, they end up in London in the heart of the British empire, but they're not cut, polished, um, and prepared for the retail market. There, they send them to Amsterdam. Why? Because Amsterdam is known already, um, by that time as the center of diamond manufacturing, this is where the experts are, uh, it has a reputation. And it has that reputation because in uh, the 17th and 18th centuries, those diamonds from Brazil and from India were taken um, to Amsterdam and cut and polished there. So there is already um, a uh, kind of a a, a well known center of diamond manufacturing in the Dutch um, in the Dutch capital, and so. In London, they sent them across the English channel to the, the the best place to have them cut and polished. And that's, uh, that's in Hebrew, they say Mokum or Makom, um, meaning place, it's the place for, um, where they're cut and they're cut there by Jews and non-Jews alike, they, so it's not an exclusively Jewish profession. Um, but it is within the Jewish community, a very important profession, um, over Fifty percent of the entire Jewish community in the Netherlands, it, counts, it comes to about sixty thousand people in total. Over half of them are dependent on uh, and relying on uh, the diamond, and so it comes back to my initial point about why diamonds is because in Holland the diamond uh, was a was profound in um, in not only in economic sustenance of the community but um also in, in providing. Uh, ways for them to become middle class over time. And, um, and we'll talk about this later, but its political implications are also uh, very important. So yes, there's um, over the course of the late 19th century, where from the moment of discovery to about 1900, uh, we see over 50 million carats uh, mined from South African soil brought by mailbags uh, across the Atlantic Ocean, distributed in London, they virtually all of those 15 million carats end up on Dutch mills, um, on diamond mills, and so it's an enormous boost to the industry. And as a result, we see um, the building of um, over 700, and uh, oh, sorry, over 7,500 diamond mills in the in Amsterdam. Yeah. And so. We see diamond factories popping up, in different parts of the city. Um, and, uh, we hear, literally hear the sound of the diamond mills for 14 hours a day, every day, um, except for Shabbat. Um, we see, we hear them, uh, in the urban environment. And so this is, this is an important industry and it Holland or in Amsterdam in particular, it becomes the, the third largest industry in the city by the turn of the century. Thank you for introducing us to that industry and in
1: such an evocative way as well that the sound of it, the scale of it, um, its importance and kind of perhaps obviously um, you would assume that when it's that big a deal to the economy, when it's that big an industry with so many people in it, um, and especially when it's so geographically concentrated, as you said, there are some political implications. And so I was not particularly surprised to read about a diamond worker's union. Um, I'm definitely not going to be able to pronounce the full name of it, uh, but the acronym that I understood is ANDB. So I'm going to go with that. Um, But I was really, I was not surprised that there was a union. I was impressed with how successful it was and kind of how it organized itself. So could you tell us a bit about the union, sort of what it was trying to do? why it was so successful, um, and then maybe we'll get on to kind of why it
2: didn't end up working elsewhere. Yeah. So when we think about the 1870s, 1880s, and we think about the explosion of diamond factories in the city, we really have to think about what life for a diamond worker was like in those factories, right? It's loud and they're steam operated. And um, it's unhealthy for you, and it's partly why. Um, it, but the, the means by which a diamond is cut and um, saw it, they cut it, they polish it. It requires a lot of metal, um, and so these were loud, unhealthy places where people worked uh, easily twelve to fourteen hours a day for very little pay. And so this is partly why we have to battle our our. Um impressions of the diamond industry as people who are all wealthy they are not the vast majority of people work long days in loud factories for little money um this was this was um kind of rich soil for proletariats that is interested in that becomes politically active as interested in improving its working conditions and so the um I'll I'll give you all extra credit if you can pronounce this the Algemene Nederlandse Diamante Werkerspool, the A Yeah, which is that's why I didn't try yeah. <laughs> So it's the the first state organized, state sanctioned and recognized um a labor union in the country. And it's led by a um a man named Henry Polak. And Polak is the he started out as a diamond worker diamond polisher came from a family of diamond polishers, a very, you know, working class man, um, who had been to England and who had been exposed to labor sentiments in England. And he comes back to, uh, to the Netherlands and together with, um, with many of his, uh, um, Jewish co-workers, but also his non-Jewish co-workers, um, Become politically active and begin to demand better working conditions, and found this diamond union. And it becomes quite successful, um, so successful in fact that um, they manage to to get all kinds of regulations put in place. This is the very first place, first country in uh, the democracies of the Western world to implement uh, an eight-hour workday. And to have a minimum wage and that was unheard of. And so they're very successful in part because of Amsterdam's centrality in the diamond, um, commodity chain. If they, they organize large scale strikes and every single diamond mill came to a screeching halt. And if diamond manufacturing in Amsterdam is central to getting polished stones onto the retail market, um, that's. And then then stopping all of those mills, uh, very quickly, diamond uh, factory owners and jewelers come to a consensus about, okay, uh, in order to continue the production of diamonds, we need to give in to these demands. And they do. We see large-scale strikes where tens of thousands of people walked the streets in very nonviolent but very persuasive and powerful ways. They had... the they had the power of numbers, and um, they manage a very successful diamond union that, over time, um, really does produce uh, great improvements and um, a, and a very kind of it sets an example for other uh, diamond uh, unions across the country and in other places um, that are not as successful, and we can get onto that. But the Diamond Union becomes actually so successful that it is the forerunner of uh, other socialist um, unions and movements and the forerunner of the Dutch Labour Party. And so it had a long-term and permanent um, and a footprint on Dutch politics and, and became a, a legitimate political party uh, in the long run. And so it's um, it really does um, show us that uh, that Jewish and non- jewish workers could could work together for a, a better uh, a better workplace fascinating. um, I think that that's such a
1: an amazing sort of find in a way. you you go on a journey looking for what happens to the diamond. and along the way, you encounter this like union that does all these things. um
2: particularly interesting too, because within the literature and in in, in uh, Jewish history, we oftentimes think about Jewish unionization as um immigrant based where the primary language of time Yiddish we think about Eastern Europe and, and we think about um, uh, Yiddish speaking immigrants in uh, in America. and the ANDB really showed that um, that a successful union within this type of profession, that Jews and non-Jews worked together here in this case, and they weren't immigrant-based. These were people who had been living in the Netherlands for many, many generations. And so it really did kind of show us that unionization, um, that we have to think a little bit more broadly about that, and that there are other examples that were actually quite successful in this in this regard.
0: This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe, Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. I'd like to continue our journey
1: um, moving across a larger ocean this time than the English Channel. Um, from Amsterdam to New York. We might think today of New York as being the center of the diamond industry, but as you've just very persuasively told us, that used to be Amsterdam. So why did the
2: diamond industry move? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, the The downside to the success of the ANDB um, is actually that because of higher wages and because of factory owners now having to abide by all these regulations, um, that they move elsewhere and so they move to places like Antwerp and they, they can get cheap labor somewhere else and so the success of the ANDB actually undermined um, the industry in the Netherlands. It also has to do with um, kind of the complicated and some sometimes a bit dry history of import and export uh, tariffs and so there's labor regulations of yeah, the, the amount of money you have to pay to import polished stones as opposed to, to rough stones and America changes its import and export regulations. Um, and it becomes cheaper then to begin to manufacture stones in America with like number one consumer of, um, of polished stones than to do so in um, in the Netherlands. large scale strikes also um, motivated uh, other people to move elsewhere. And so what we see is then an attempt as a result of combined uh, kind of changing labor laws and unemployment and, and, uh, strikes in the Netherlands, um, and various other motivating factors that we see, um, that attempts to start the polishing business, uh, across the Atlantic, uh, with various success. I mean, they, um, we do see that. The beginning of the American um, diamond industry and manufacturing business it actually has Dutch roots. So we see most of those, both the engineering and the and the machinery as well as its um, its labor force. And we see immigrants, Jewish, particularly Jewish immigrants, um, in the diamond industry as the first ones uh, that begin to cut and polish stones in New York City. So there's they even speak Dutch there. There's Dutch language in. In English, that's adopted from um, from those uh, from kind of the lingo industry, um, and but yes, they they do um, they do transfer technology and expertise in uh, into some extent um, into onto American soil. Yeah, and part of this answer is probably going to come from what you've just told us, right?
1: That there were incentives to move because, in some ways, the unions were too successful. Um, given that there was a model for a very successful diamond workers
2: union with the andb why wasn't there something like that in new york in part because they lack the numbers um you know in holland we're talking about tens of thousands of people and um, those numbers just weren't present in america and so what we see is that the industry is small enough that um they couldn't pull it off i mean if they, there was If there were large, there weren't any large scale strikes here. Um, They had also trained, over time, they had trained people of non Jewish descent to be diamond polishers. Companies like Tiffany, for instance, started their own cutting and polishing um, uh, uh, little factories. And so we, we don't really see the the clout that the American or the Dutch Jewish community, excuse me, had, um, we just don't see that happening, uh, on American soil at all. And so there's great frustration and we see this in the letters that are exchanged between Polak as the, as the head of the ANDB in Amsterdam, trying to give his support to, um, to what's happening in New York city and, um, the frustration that some of these workers, um, tell us in their letters to Polakis that they, they, they asking for help, they're asking for advice. Um, and he, Polakis tried to give it to him, but he realizes that, that it's just not going to pan out in the same way, um, as it did, uh, in, in Amsterdam. And so they're trying, but they're not, they're not being very successful in it. Um, and what we also see is that, um, unionization in the United States is very successful in other industries but they just can't they just can't match it in in that regard because it's just not just not big enough hmm. if that makes any sense
1: yeah that makes a lot of sense thank you for explaining so far we've talked mostly about kind of the the literal journey of the diamond um, and the sort of logistics and the reality of what this industry looked like and how it developed over time. But I want to make sure we don't ignore kind of the other side of diamonds, right? The, the part that's in culture, that's in people's imaginations, right? All this wouldn't happen if people didn't want to buy them. Um, and of course, if we're talking about diamonds, you know, marketing, literature, like, They're very shiny, you know, they're not hidden away. They're very known about in culture. Um, So if we think about kind of the British Empire side of this, could you tell us a bit about how diamonds were framed in sort of the popular imagination in Britain and America, and especially sort of the role of
2: Jews related to diamonds in that imaginary? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, and it comes back to the historical moment, right? Is that the, when we're talking about the late 19th century, we're not only talking about a time of imperial expansion, we're not only talking about um, unionization and, and um, I, the, the creation of a larger middle class who have money to spend um, as a result of industrialization and um, and as they would say in French, but um, we also have to think about the historical moment where we see the the enormous expansion of print culture and advertisement, and so that we today still think, or you know, who hasn't, wasn't who heard the sentence "a diamond is forever," uh, and that is the success of the, ad, the advertisement and of creating kind of the the aura or the the kind of the. Um, the reputation of the stone. And so um, diamonds became, contrary to what most people believe, diamonds are not rare, right? They are not rare. They are mined today on every single continent except Europe. It is a created scarcity um, that makes us believe that they're rare because we want them to be rare, right? We want them. We want something exclusive. We want something expensive, Um, but the fact that we propose with a diamond ring, many people still do to this day. Um, that's a created custom. and we do so because there is this this um, kind of reputation built around stone um, that it's, yeah you know, we, that it's so exclusive and expensive and pure, and a symbol of love for us. Um, And that is not something that's natural, that has been created through print culture and and very successful advertisement. And so um, this is in a way then um, what accounts for the success of the stone. is not only that we find these enormous mines and that there's this moment of both enormous increase in supply, but also an enormous increase in demand for it. And that happened in that particular moment um, of, uh, of the late 19th century and Jews are engaged in that of course. Right. And so, um, what we see then is in the popular imagination, the diamond, um, we also see the connection between Jews and diamond in the popular imagination, both positive and negative. And it, this is Miranda, the, the time where I had to make some tough decisions about what I what I could include and what I could not include because there was so much material for this. Mm -hmm. Um, We see the connection between Jews and diamonds in Victorian literature, in crime novels and detective novels that, that um, where the diamond of course is, is, and particularly illegal diamond trading becomes kind of part of the plot of a detective novel and where then the the kind of um, shady characters and the untrustworthy characters and the dealers in the illegal diamonds business are all Jews. And it's because people who are writing these Victorian detective, uh, mystery novels are drawing on prejudice and they're drawing on stereotypes that are already, um, around and are already very prominent when it comes to Jews. They are the ones who are, um. It's oftentimes seen as racially suspect, as crooks, as shady and um, uh, and immoral, repudial, and so they they oftentimes draw on on tropes that um, in those kinds of stories then begin to link Jews and diamonds in uh, very kind of um, in ways that are problematic. We also see it in political cartoons, um, in particularly around the, the turn of the century during the Boer War in South Africa, where we see political cartoons who are presenting Jews and diamonds, and the beers, um, and we see these kind of images of bloated capitalists who are uh, portrayed with crooked noses, with very thick lips, and they look all like Barney Barnato, <laughs> and they have they they make the conscious and deliberate connection between Jews and diamonds, capitalism and exploitation. And so this is also the time, and I'm speaking again as a historian, this is also the time where we see um, peak East European immigration, right, to the United States. Over 20 million Jews come to the United States between 1880 and 1914, and on this part of a larger wave of kind of this demographic uh, shift, where we see uh, great numbers of people moving to the United States. It's also the time eighteen eighties, eighteen nineties, where there's great um, numbers of East European uh, Jewish immigration to London, and so there's a heightened sense of um, of we begin to see yes. expressions of racial anti-Semitism, um, of discomfort with Jewish immigrants, and so then the. The connections are easily made, right, between uh, perceptions of Jews as as um, exploiters, as um, as a capitalist, as financiers, and we see diamonds popping up then uh, in in those political cartoons, in racist uh, um, depictions of Jews, and so in the long run, we see that um, diamonds were, in a sense, good for Jews in in that they offered. Employment and that they offered, um, in this case of the ANDP, political engagement and very kind of political successes, um, and they were uh, had a profound. What's the word I'm looking for? Implications for uh, for many you know, economically for many Jewish families, but they also um, it always it also didn't always help them in the popular imagination, and so we see that. That diamonds and Jews, the marriage of that, right? Diamonds and Jews also had negative implications for that, and we see also see it in the American press. The American press was highly critical of, uh, particularly when it comes to Jewish women if they wore diamonds, and and we see it also within the American Jewish press that they are trying to encourage Jewish women from not being ostentatious, or Mm practicing modesty and not flaunt. I used that word, don't flaunt your wealth or don't flaunt your um, these diamonds on you because um, it's it's not proper. And it, they, they didn't think it was good for the reputation, for the image of the American Jew, to um, for those who were well-to-do to flaunt their success. And so they urged modesty in that regard because it didn't bode well for Jews to Um, to be looked upon and to be perceived by the non-Jewish public as not being um, modest or to kind of rub it in their faces that they were successful. And so the diamond, and I I make this point in, in the book at the end, that when you think about a diamond and all its facets, right, it kind of functions as little mirrors. When the light hits it, it refracts the lights and shines kind of it illuminates so many different, uh, kind of, um, facets of its story. This, in a way the diamond functions in history that way too, right? If we look at it, the diamond itself as the object, it shines a light on so many different issues happening at that particular time that we, we can learn something from the diamond about, um about Jewish economic life, about their social aspirations, about immigration, about um, Jews and empire. So there are many facets to this story that uh, it wasn't always easy to kind of get a, to create a book out of that, that made sense, right? Because it, and that still had a kind of a clear thread or um, an overarching theme, because there was just so many facets to to talk about, um, that it was at times a bit overwhelming and I had to leave a lot of stuff out um but anyway so there's for instance one of the facets of this story was the role of jewish women in the diamond industry which i don't really talk about a whole lot because i just you know my publisher told me no make it too big <laughs> 300 pages no more so I cut that out and so there's there's whole stories to be told about what women do in the diamond industry that nobody's really looked at before so there are many facets to this um but hopefully it's become a book that um gives us a little bit of a of a um a, a sense of what the diamond can teach us maybe that's the way to
1: well, thinking of kind of those bigger picture questions, um, now that you have so very helpfully traced us the journey of the diamond and understand the different communities of Jews um, in that journey, um, it's obviously, if we think about the context, very much empire involved for a lot of it. Um, how do you think that these Jewish families functioned as, quote,
2: software of empire? Yeah. Um I think part of it it's it's something I've already touched upon on, on uh, earlier on is that within empire and these imperial channels, Jews. where we think about empire and kind of emerging globalization, we think about the flow of goods and um, and uh, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, goods and services and capital. Um, between different nodes, right, different parts of the world, and the Jews moved within these uh, imperial channels quite easily because of the networks that they had, because of familial connections that they had, because of um, social relations that they had, and so they were able, in a way, they were very early agents of globalization and moved within empire rather um, easily, um, and. For, and they had done so for centuries. I and mean, we already see with Sephardim of the 16th and 17th century that they have uncles in uh, in India and they have a cousin somewhere in, um, in South America. And so it is not a surprise, in other words, that when we're talking about the emergence of a commodity chain and of commodity cultures, that um, Jews were part and parcel of that story. And it doesn't mean that they were always successful and it doesn't mean that all jews were uh, kind of part of this story there were and there were many non-jews engaged in it as well Um, but it does based on their experience that they had had um, in commercial enterprise over centuries and the networks and the kinship relations that they had cultivated uh, for so many generations that that uh, was an advantage to them and and they took as as most other people at the time, they uh, took advantage of the ethos of um, of empire and of uh, success, and so and they they wanted what everybody else wanted at the time, which was economic success. And sometimes they they managed to do that, and many times they didn't. And so, um, but the diamond, in a way, as an object, following its journey. Um, and looking at the fingerprints of who touched it and who, um, who worked it or who carried it from place to place. It actually shows us how that was done, right? It kind of, by following the object, we get a sense of how these Jewish families were connected. And, um, we learn more about the faces behind the stone and how we actually do see it. Moving from deep inside the earth to eventually on somebody's finger or around somebody's neck. And what happened in between those moments tells us a lot about uh, the modern world and and how modern commodity chains were made. On that point, right, the modern world, we very much think of
1: globalization as being a key part of it. And so, in a similar sense of software of empire, you also talk about Jews um, in the book, you talk about them being. Quote central agents of early globalization. Um, do you want to tell us a bit about
2: this? Yeah, I mean it's um, in a way they sh- they showed us right about how um, how the modern world is made in the sense that we're much more interconnected these days, um, and they took advantage of um, and built in a way too um, what we today think about as globalization. Right, they they created those. Um, when it comes to diamonds, they created those connections and solidified them, um, in ways that we sometimes now take for granted. So for instance, um, when we think about the early diamond fields where there is, where, and the only thing that you would really find there, um, well, you yeah, know well, or in the early days were a few tents and axes and, um, uh, and some very, uh, Motivated people digging into the ground, they needed all kinds of resources in order to create the diamond fields, right? And so, when you start digging deeper, you and it rains a few times, and you need to get that all that water out of your diamond mine. Um, and so, they needed a dime, or they needed a water pump. Well, those water pumps came from London, and so in order for a diamond pump, you needed, you needed somebody there to ship it and to get it all the way across the ocean, then 750 miles into the South African Africa interior to get to the water pump. Many Jews are engaged in this, right? They have those family members there, they have the already the economic and commercial infrastructure there. Um, and so we see the movement then of, of goods and uh, the um, movement of capital when they start investing in this, improvements in communication, um, all of the things that we now think about that in, to create a global um, kind of, an, or, or the early phases of globalization, that we see all of those things coming together, um, that Jewish families were part and parcel of creating that when it comes to the diamond industry. And so in that sense, um, Jews were really deeply involved in the imperial project and um, and were central agents in this regard. in. Uh, and not as the only ones, but within the diamond industry as as really important figures that created um what what would supply the Western world for the next hundred and fifty years um diamonds coming from uh, those very diamond fields like a four mile radius that will supply the entire world with diamonds for the next uh, century and a half. Yeah. And so they helped create that that flow um, uh, and that, what becomes basically a, um, a, a permanent commodity chain.
1: Thank you for explaining those linkages and kind of tying a lot of these things that we've been discussing together. Um, it very conveniently leads me to my final question, which is that now that the book is out, you can go read about all of it in even more detail. Is there something you might be working on next, whether or not it's
2: a book, whether or not it's on this subject? Um, Yeah, I'd like to take the story um, of the diamond industry and the diamond trade uh, into the 1940s um, and uh, what happens to it during World War II. The diamond industry becomes Nazified when um, uh, Nazi Germany occupies the Netherlands and Belgium. Antwerp uh, had taken over from Amsterdam after World War I uh, as the primary manufacturing center. but with the Nazi um, occupation, one of the, two of these central places of diamond manufacturing fall under Nazi control. And so this has major implications on, um, on what happens during the war. And um, something I did not talk about in this book was the significance of industrial diamonds. And industrial diamonds um, become of enormous importance um, during, during the war not only for the Germans, but also for the Americans and for the British. And so those diamonds need to come from somebody and from somewhere. And so the commodity chain is then disrupted by, um, by, uh, the occupier and by, because of the conflict. I came across really fascinating material, um, during an archival visit to Amsterdam a few months ago. Um, that showed uh, the attempt to to create diamond manufacturing inside of the concentration camps, uh, both in Vught in the Netherlands and in Bergen-Belsen. Um, they shipped, they disassembled and shipped um, material from Amsterdam uh, into the barbed wire of Bergen-Belsen and Vught, and so we see this amazing and really stunning attempt by the Nazis to continue diamond manufacturing inside of concentration camps by Jews who are, are uh, once they have completed their task, would be sent to their deaths. And so we see this tension on the one hand of wanting to exploit as much as possible uh, and benefit from the diamond industry, taking those profits uh, to fund a war effort. But then the tension between exploitation, but also the desire to eliminate um, those people who are the experts at um, at cutting and polishing. And so the vast majority of diamond polishers and cutters, Dutch ones at least, are, um, are murdered during the Holocaust. More than 75% of Dutch Jews are murdered by the Nazis and don't come back. And the diamond industry is gutted. Amsterdam does not recover from this. Antwerp does, but uh, Amsterdam is a shadow of its former self. And so the, the next project is to find out how the diamond functioned and how the diamond industry and trade, how it continued uh, during the Nazi occupation. So that's the, that's, I don't know if that will be a book, but um, right now I'm, I'm just knee deep in the archival research. Well, that's always quite a fun and interesting place to be. Um,
1: So best of luck with that. And while you are knee deep in the archives, of course, listeners can read the book we've been discussing titled A Brilliant Commodity, Diamonds and Jews in a Modern Setting. Saskia, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. You're quite welcome. And thank you
2: for having me on.